Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas. Of all the things that make us human, childhood is the most distinctive. Through long dependency we become adaptable and this adaptation to a particular mother, to a particular family, to a particular culture begins virtually from conception. But with dependency goes vulnerability, and so the world too must adapt to the needs of its children. Tonight on Ideas, we begin a repeat of a four-part series entitled The World of the Child, in which we examine the way in which our children are adapting to their world, and the way our world is adapting to its children. The series is presented by David Cayley. The old bridge at Avignon dates from the 14th century, and this song preserves the impressions of children watching a festival honoring the patron saint of the bridge. The soldiers bow like this. And then again, like this. And the children watch, an accepted part of their world, observing, imitating. In the medieval world, the lives of children were often harsh, but they did mix freely in adult society. Today, the world has grown complex and inaccessible to children. And though their lives are easier, they spend much of them in separate institutions cut off from the adult world. Yet, according to Neil Postman, a professor of media ecology at New York University, it is the separation and protection of children that defines the very idea of childhood. The main difference between a child and an adult is that an adult is in possession of certain secrets that are not considered suitable for children to know. These are sexual secrets, political secrets, social secrets, medical secrets, and the like. The process of socialization has involved adults gradually, in stages, revealing these secrets to the young in psychologically assimilable ways. When the young know all the secrets, they are, in theory, adults. Childhood, in other words, is a condition of innocence, defined in its literal sense of not knowing. And it is Postman's opinion, expressed in a book he published last year called The Disappearance of Childhood, that pervasive exposure to television is now destroying that innocence. Television makes hash of this whole process because it reveals to everyone in the culture simultaneously all of the cultural secrets so that at any given time, a 3-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 30-year-old, and a 72-year-old are watching the same material on television. So TV, because of its instantaneity, because of its simultaneity, because of its inability to segregate audiences, therefore, uh, eliminates the idea of having a special category of people, children, who are in need of uh, protection and nurturing and 
who are in particular to be protected against knowing too early some of the things that adults know. Because this process is well underway, it seems to me that the idea of, of childhood is being rapidly eroded. Postman's concern about television eroding the idea of childhood is consonant with a principle expressed to me by Neil Sutherland of the Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia. In a book called The Children of English Canada, Sutherland has studied the debates about children in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a period during which he believes our current consensus on childhood was developed. He argues that whenever society is seen as changing or in need of change, child-rearing becomes an issue. The new kind of world demands a new kind of socialization, and you can find examples, both economic and spiritual and so on, at various points in, in time in history. And, and I think that's where children come to the fore, is at, at points where we're, we're changing from one kind of a world to another. One thinks about them. They're, they're, they come to the forefront of consciousness rather than being you know, there all the time. You know, I make the difference, the point about the difference between the 1870s and 1890s for the the vast majority of children, over 99%, there is no difference in their lives in 1870 and in 1890. The difference is in society in the 1870s, nobody's talking about kids either. In the 1890s, everybody's suddenly interested in kids because they're concerned about what the shape of the new world is going to be, and maybe they better change, better do something about their child-rearing practices. Neil Sutherland does not himself feel that what he calls the 20th century consensus on children is now breaking down. Neil Postman obviously disagrees. And here, he summarizes the evidence for his view that childhood is disappearing. For example, we see now that among the highest paid models in America now are 12 and 13-year-old girls. There are some people who have already forgotten that to present a 12-year-old girl in public display as an erotic object was considered to be psychopathic only maybe 15 years ago. Nowadays, it's normal fare on television. Let's take another example, crime. 15 and 20 years ago, there was, such, there was something called a juvenile delinquent. I wonder if anyone remembers a juvenile delinquent. There were such things as a criminal code for children. In other words, children were not to suffer the same penalties as adults for crime. The reason was that 20 years ago, children by and large did not commit the same crimes as adults. All of this has changed now. In the States, between 1950 and 1979, the increase in serious crime among the under 15-year-old population exceeds 11,000%. Now, this, this is uh, serious crime as defined by the FBI, which is murder, rape, kidnapping, and so on. So what we see is that the distinction between child crime and adult crime is rapidly being eroded. Let's take other examples. Diseases, for instance. Uh, 25 years ago, uh, alcoholism was regarded as strictly an adult affliction. No one ever heard of a 12-year-old alcoholic. This has changed now. Alcoholism among the young is, is, is quite common, as are a drug addiction and venereal disease. In other words, the diseases that now uh, 
children are afflicted with are the same sorts of diseases that adults are afflicted with. Let's take uh, other examples. Um, games. Does anyone remember when there, there was a very rich and varied uh, repertoire of things known as children's games? Uh, uh, these are rapidly disappearing and are being replaced by sports such as Little League Baseball or Pee Wee Football that are modeled entirely on adult big league sports. They're modeled in their rules, in the context in which they're played, in their emotional style and so on. The evidence which Neil Postman presents is, of course, largely American. But he believes, and I think he is right, that what he is describing is common, at least in some degree, to all industrialized countries. His point is underlined by the observations of David Elkind, the chairman of the Department of Child Study at Tufts University. What we're seeing today, I think one of the most uh, frightening things that we're seeing as I, I travel around, I'd already reported some of the statistics for adolescents, which are you know, doubling and tripling suicide rates, drug abuse rates, and so on. What we're seeing in children today is uh, de depression more and more, which we didn't see in kids before. I, I, I have even written about the fact that I didn't believe depression could occur in children because I thought it was, it was cognitively impossible. But what we're seeing is five- and six-year-old kids who are not just unhappy but depressed, low mood, low self-concept, lack of apathetic, and so on. It's uh, depression in, in childhood uh, is becoming a very serious syndrome. Uh, Washington now is setting up conferences for affective disorders in children. Uh, Boston are having a conference on affective disorders in young children in a few weeks. Um, to me, that again is a symptom of the stress that young kids are under today, that you're seeing so much depression, you're seeing all the other psychosomatic symptoms of headache, uh, um, stomach ache, all of the things that we know accompany stress in kids. Uh, there we know that now we're seeing um, hypertensive kids uh, and so on. So yes, we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, we're, gonna, we're seeing a lot, a lot of sick kids. And uh, oh, I was in New Hampshire recently, a small high school, 400 kids in a rural bucolic environment, you know, with every house having a couple of acres and farms and animals, you think, gee, this, these kids are going to be great. Fifty percent of the kids in the high school have alcohol problems. The things that David Elkind and Neil Postman are describing are undeniably real and acutely disturbing. Their meaning is harder to pin down. Is childhood disappearing, as Postman supposes? Or is it possible he is observing the painful side effects of an evolutionary upheaval, which may also be producing beneficial effects in the lives of some children? To try and answer these questions, I want to delve a little into the history of childhood in order to see whether we can discover there a pattern of change which sheds light on the lives of children today. In a paper published last year, in the Canadian Review of Sociology and Anthropology, Professor John Lee of Scarborough College suggests that three distinct views of children can be detected in Western history. Children have been seen first as property, then as dependents in need of protection and regulation, and finally as persons. What is now passing away in Professor Lee's view is not childhood as such, but rather the idea of children as innocents in need of protection from adult realities. But first, 
let's turn to the idea of children as property. Children were lumped together with pets, slaves, women, and furniture, and, and uh, draw horses and, and oxen as uh, possessions of the familias. The very word family comes from the old Greek word household, meaning all of the property of the head of the household, who, of course, was the patriarch, the, the, the eldest man, uh, and included often sons that were themselves full-grown adults and their servants and so on. And in that context, children were simply a piece of uh, the furniture, if you like, uh, to be disposed of at, at pleasure. If you wanted to sell the child, if you wanted to abandon on uh, the way you would, uh, you know, a misshapen calf that was born, uh, then that was your pleasure. The idea of children as property is still present in residual forms today. But in pre-Reformation Europe, when this view was universal, Childhood as a separate stage of life apparently did not exist. The idea that childhood as a separate status is a social invention of modern Europe was first broached by the French historian Philippe Ariès in his book Centuries of Childhood, published in 1960. He deduced it from the representation of children as miniature adults in the art and iconography of medieval Europe and the idea has since received quite general acceptance by historians. Neil Postman. There were uh, apparently two stages of life, infancy and adulthood, and infancy seemed to end at about the age of seven, which is the age, of course, when uh, uh, children have more or less mastered oral language. Uh, after the age of seven, a, a, a child, or what we would call a child, in the medieval world became uh, more or less an instant miniature adult. With the exception of making war and making love, there were no distinctions made between the young and the adult in the medieval world. Somewhere in the middle of the 17th century, 1650, around then, you see a watershed. Jerome Kagan, professor of developmental psychology at Harvard University. And you summarize the change in this way. One, we now have a larger group of middle-class mothers who don't have to work, who don't have to gather berries, sow. They're not hunter-gatherers anymore, and they're not necessarily out in large, large agricultural areas with so much work to do, with a lot of chores. They're comfortable, they're burgers, and therefore they can become much more identified and sentimentally attached to their children. Second, children, the children of these middle-class city families, they are no more economic necessities because you don't have a farm. Rural families need children to run, to go do the agricultural work. Your children are plow horses. They're economic necessities for you. If you're a middle-class bourgeoisie in Lyon or London, you don't need your children. Now notice what that does. Now your child changes its function. Your child now can bring you enhanced status by rising in the artificial status hierarchy of the society rather than helping you plant corn. So you have you the child is now a much more sentimental object. You much more, you're identified with its successes, and you have a status system. 
Before that time when there's less social mobility, you don't worry about your child's future because if you're a blacksmith, your kid's going to be a blacksmith. And if you're nobility, your kid will be a nobility. There's no, no chance of a blacksmith's child becoming nobility. There's no, if there's no social mobility, then you're not worried about what your child will become. You know what your child will become. He will be you. Once you break down those barriers and you create uncertainty about the future, then you're, a, you're the son of a burger and a burger's wife. It's not certain what you will become. Now you worry about your children. And now you need a theory to reduce your uncertainty. You don't want to have parents worrying. And though you create a theory which emphasizes the importance of what parents do to children. Also, you want to, what you want to build into this child is an achievement motivation rather than an obedience motivation. If you're a rural family in the 15th century, you want to train piety and obedience. If you're sitting in the city and you want your child to rise in the hierarchy, then you want a child who is less obedient, more autonomous. And I think there's a sentimental phenomenology to say, well, then my child should be confident, right? I want a self-confident child then you begin to praise your child, you begin to punish him less. You don't want him frightened of you, otherwise you know that if he's frightened of you, he'll be frightened of other people. So you start treating him more gently, you start to identify with him, and now you, because, you, because the mother is there most of the time, it's easy therefore to say that most of what happens must be a function of what the mother does, because she's around the child much more. The younger, older sisters and grandmothers aren't taking care of the child. And so the change, we get the movement toward the modern family, which you see well, reaching its crest in the 20th century here in North America, where you say, this baby is a loving, affectionate organism. The mother is primarily responsible for whether it becomes a Nobel laureate or a criminal, and it needs love. It needs love. That conception begins its storyline, middle of the 17th century. Jerome Kagan, I think properly, emphasizes the social and economic foundations of our idea of childhood. But in this statement, whether he quite intended it or not, I think he somewhat overstates the cause and effect relationship between changing socioeconomic conditions and our contemporary beliefs about the importance of early experience. Certainly it was changing socioeconomic conditions which made this idea for the first time possible and practical. But this does not necessarily make the idea a pure invention. We could equally well say that changing conditions made possible the discovery of the importance of early experience, which had been previously overlooked. This idea of childhood as a discovery rather than an invention, is certainly a possible interpretation of Neil Postman's thesis that it was the invention of the printing press which established the conditions for the emergence of childhood as a separate status. Before the printing press, one simply became an adult uh, by learning how to speak, for which all people are biologically programmed. After the printing press, you could only become an adult by learning how to be literate, for which all people are not biologically programmed. Now, what this meant was that schools, or what we call schools, had to be established. And in the uh, late uh, 16th and early 17th century, for the first time, the young, that is four, five, six, seven 
year-olds were separated from the rest of the adult community and placed in these peculiar places we call schools where they were to be instructed and disciplined in the ways of literacy. Now, uh, you know that uh, it's a fundamental sociological principle that if you separate a group, any group, for a single purpose, in this case, teaching them uh, how to read and write, eventually people will perceive this group to be unusual in other respects as well. And this is exactly what happened here. As soon as the young were pulled out of the adult community to become schoolboys and schoolgirls in order to become literate, it was inevitably noticed that they were different in all sorts of other ways. And therefore, they began to be required to dress differently and to play differently. And uh, it was assumed that they thought differently. Uh, uh, there were all sorts of changes as a result of the development of schools. And so from that point onward, uh, uh, different European cultures began to pay attention in an entirely different way to this age group and began to assign to them a preferred status, began to think of them not as miniature adults, but as unformed adults, which is altogether different. I mean, if one reads John Locke, uh, for example, you can see that his entire conception of a child is that a child is, is, uh, is an unformed adult, someone still on the way to becoming an adult, and uh, he makes it very clear that what a child has to do to become an adult is uh, not just learn how to read and write, that's the key thing, but to learn how to discipline his mind, to learn how to control his body, to learn how to control his passions and instincts, all of the things that the schools uh, committed themselves to do and, and to some extent are still committed to do. In the tradition of Harold Innes and Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman believes that it is the communications conditions within a culture which shape both how people think and what they pay attention to. When print becomes the dominant medium of communication, people begin to notice childhood. It becomes a dominant social idea. And because this idea persists through all sorts of economic changes, it follows for Postman that it must have some more fundamental basis than simply economics. Nevertheless, childhood does initially emerge as both a class and sex-based idea. The first modern children were the sons of the European bourgeoisie. Only later, and very gradually, were the privileges of this status extended to daughters and to rural and working-class children. And there is the additional complicating factor that children themselves became in some sense a class in their own right. In the 18th century, for example, both servants and workers could properly be addressed by their masters as child indicating that the emergence of childhood in the middle class involved the infantilization of the working poor. In rural Canada, the emergence of childhood as a separate and protected status didn't really take place until the latter part of the 19th century. Neil Sutherland. For rural Canada, 
that it's somewhere between the, the 1870s and the 1890s that modernization begins to have an effect. Um, up until that time, the, the childhood of a, of a child, say, in on rural Ontario in the 1870s was not very different from a childhood in rural um, French Canada in the 1670s. For most people, I think, in a, in a society where where nearly everybody had to work all the time, there was not the leisure or the luxury to be able to enjoy childhood. And those kinds of things that we like about children now, as children, um, were things that one wanted to get children through as quickly as possible if one wanted to get them into the workforce uh, uh, so that they could help the family survive. And so those kinds of things that we value, they didn't value very much. Middle-class parents did, and that's why we're often misled by, by literary sources, because it's mostly middle- and upper-class people who write memoirs, and they did indeed cherish at least some parts of those kinds of childhood. But for most of the people where, where the kids started working and um, contributing their share to the family survival, as it were, um, in the 70s, up until the 1870s or 1880s, you know, we just needed those kids... Um, and the kinds of characteristics that they had that, that made them childlike um, were not the kinds of characteristics that made for good family workers. Gender, class, and geography all affected the timing of the emergence of childhood. But eventually, it became a universal condition in all industrialized societies. Professor John Lee of Scarborough College has summarized this condition as what he calls the protection paradigm, the second of his three paradigms of childhood. By the term paradigm, he refers basically to those mental models which we use to make sense of our experience, and which we often mistake for reality itself. There are a number of changes that come at about the same time. Uh, the increase in population density in Europe in particular, the emergence of industrial technology, the emergence of the modern city, uh, concepts of capitalist relationships and so on, which change the nature of, of labor, etc. So that, uh, to some extent, children become less valuable as uh, pieces of property. They become a liability rather than an asset, on, even on the farm, and certainly in the city. Um, you have the notion that the child is, is something to be... Uh, enjoyed rather the way there's a shift from crafts to arts, for example, in the Renaissance. Uh, you know, the ideas here are, are, I'm not saying are brand new. Aristotle said that a gentleman is a person who enjoys useless things more than useful things. And that's ancient Greece. But the notion that one could live a lifestyle in which useless things were more valuable to your lifestyle than the useful artifacts, whether they're pieces of art on the wall or uh, pieces of furnishing or children, is something that was possible with the Industrial Revolution, with mass techniques of production, cheap goods, international trade, imperialism, etc. Uh, so uh, children have become a useless uh, pleasure, if you like, for adults, uh, like a piece of art. And uh, the protection paradigm is really a way of saying, I want to shape this, this uh, possession of mine in a way which will reflect my tastes my view of the world, my religion, uh, my career goals, in the same way as I might uh, you know, choose my household surroundings, my art purchases, my educational investments, and so on, uh, to reflect this sense of 
um, a calling, if you like, the, because the Reformation is certainly part of this too, a particular calling in life. You see, there's a terrific shift uh, which goes with the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Industrial Revolution, and so on, away from the idea that uh, this life is a mere passing phase in which if we are good, we will be rewarded in heaven, to the Calvinist Lutheran notion of this life being important and success in this life being important. So children as children then become something to be protected from uh, the corruption of the adult world until they're ready for it. But at the same time, a very important investment which adults make in th their own future. The idea that children ought to be protected from the corruption of adult social life created an expanding role for the state in the lives of children. Middle-class reformers of the 19th century argued that the welfare of society and the manageability of the working class, by which they often meant the same thing, depended on the intervention of the state in the lives of children. Edgerton Ryerson, who played such a major role in shaping Ontario's school system, declared that the state should be, as he said, a collective parent to the children of its citizens. John Lee. The state became the most suitable instrument by which uh, people who were interested in protecting children, first of all, protecting children from their own parents and other adults, uh, protecting them from uncontrolled experience of their peers, that is, uh, policing the childhood culture. You see, there's a very interesting culture which most adults have forgotten of things which children teach to other children. You have probably never taught your children um, marbles or bottle caps or what have you. These things are taught by slightly older children and slightly younger ones. And most of these childhood cultural items need to be policed, need to, need to be absorbed into classroom picture books and teachers setting agendas for their learning uh, so that the child will not be free to absorb whatever the child wants to grow in the way that a plant put in ground and left to itself, what we call a weed, uh, would you know, take over what it needs from the environment and expand accordingly. It's, we're, we're converting the weeds of, of childhood into uh, cultivars. And uh, the state is the gardener in this case, because of course the modern state has the greatest resources to finance education, uh, to finance uh, probation, uh, reform schools, uh, mass textbooks, ministries of education, and so on. I started my research with a, uh, a, a moment of delusion that maybe Freud was right. I'm a Freudian-trained uh, psychoanalyst, and, and uh, Freud said, after all, that the more civilized you become, the more repressed you become. So I figured, well, if you go back in history, you should find unrepressed, nice, healthy people, right? Uh, uh, and uh, was astonished to find uh, just the opposite. This is Lloyd DeMoss, the director of the Institute for Psychohistory in New York, the founding editor of the History of Childhood Quarterly, now called the Journal of Psychohistory, and the author of several books which touch on the history of childhood. In 1974, DeMoss published an essay entitled The Evolution of Childhood, in which he took issue with much of the conventional wisdom on the subject. The history of childhood, he wrote in the opening passage of this essay, is a nightmare 
from which mankind has only recently begun to awaken. The further back in history one goes, the more archaic the mode of parenting, and the more likely children are to be routinely abandoned, killed, beaten, emotionally and physically starved, and sexually molested. In Damas's view, child-rearing evolves through a series of modes or stages, culminating only in recent times, and even then only rarely, in what he calls the empathic or helping mode of parental behavior. In what follows, he is responding to my request for a precy of its theory. There was a time when everybody on this earth was infanticidal. Uh, you go back to antiquity and you find that, uh, that about one out of two children, for instance, were uh, literally killed uh, at birth with little guilt. Uh, and only very slowly uh, does uh, this change. When the Christians first came uh, uh, into Rome, uh, uh, one guy said, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, these Christians, they, well, they pretty much dress the same way we do and eat the same things we do, but they got a, a weird idea. They don't think that they should kill their newborn. Very strange people. Uh, and uh, slowly this penetrated the consciousness of Western Europe, at least. Uh, and uh, uh, rather than infanticiding your newborn, uh, you uh, merely sent them off perhaps to a, uh, to a monastery uh, and abandoned them, either uh, physically or emotionally, or to a wet nurse or to a, to a foster home or various other ways. Uh, back in history, uh, uh, during the Middle Ages, people would, for instance, in a country as advanced as uh, France or England, uh, regularly send all their children away at the age of seven to other homes uh, uh, and uh, bring other children into their homes as servants or apprentices or whatever. And uh, this kind of continuous over and over abandonment uh, uh, by their parents uh, has an enormously destructive effect on your trust in, uh, in the world. Uh, by the time you got to the uh, to the modern age in the 1600s, the family of at least some portion of society was uh, somewhat more stable. Uh, mothers even nursed their own kids rather than sending them out to wet nurses. But because they were then more close to their children, they were able to uh, 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 give them somewhat more trust in the world, but they very much had to control them, that Puritan mother that says, uh, uh, you are evil and I must pray with you for two hours a day to show how, how much badness you have in you to this little two or three year old kid, uh, is a very intrusive, over-controlling mother uh, who is trying to uh, offset the fear she has of the child who is somewhat closer to her and she's not sending off to a wet nurse. Uh, and then slowly but surely, by the time you get to the 18th, 19th century, you get what I actually term the socializing mode uh, that is somewhat more common today of your neighbors and so on. And I think perhaps by the time you get Spock generation, uh, uh, in America here, you get uh, what uh, 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 you might term the helping mode in which you're not essentially socializing the child as a way of forming a, a, a lump of clay into what you want to make it, but rather are uh, giving some sense to what the child wants and to what the child's image of himself and what the child's individuation might be and uh, just simply helping them become what they want to be. Uh, 
this in a quick uh, uh, rundown is uh, uh, 3,000 years of, uh, of childhood history. Uh, but the, the essence of the picture when you finish up is that these uh, uh, five or six modes of child rearing of the past are still present with us, fossilized, if you will, in the cycle classes of uh, the society around us. DeMoss's theory, naturally, has had its critics, and most of them have stressed the inapplicability of modern psychoanalytic ideas to people living in times very different than our own. To this, DeMoss has responded, I think quite tellingly, that if people want to believe that children once accepted or enjoyed the kind of abandonment and abuse which he has found in the historical record, then that is their business. The essence of his theory is that psychic structure as he has written, must always be passed from generation to generation through the narrow funnel of childhood. And for this reason, he views the encounter between parent and child as the fundamental locus of historical change. What you have to imagine is uh, uh, every society as uh, <laughs> a yeast of, of wishes uh, to relate to their children in some way better than, uh, than their parents did. Uh, long before there was books on child rearing or Dr. Spock's or, uh, or uh, therapy, uh, uh, every parent tried uh, a second time around to regress to the child's age, imagine its uh, needs, and then do it better than uh, was done uh, at that age in, in their own uh, family of, of origin. And in a sense, uh, that's something like what we've discovered in therapy. Uh, after all, uh, therapy is merely a second time around that you're visiting your childhood and trying to undo old decisions and, and produce new decisions. Uh, a, a mother will say uh, uh, to her child, uh, uh, if you knock that milk off the uh, table, uh, uh, you will be uh, uh, punished by God and you'll be dead the next moment. When that child grows up and sees a glass of milk on the table and has a, her own child with her, uh, she looks at it and says, well, maybe I won't say God will kill you dead, but I will say you are bad inside of you, and so on and so on. And maybe it, after centuries of revisiting this childhood scene, eventually uh, uh, the mother might say, it's just a glass of milk, that's okay. <laughs> if you break it, the world hasn't ended. Uh, uh, this is very hard to achieve. You see the mothers struggling in the documents to achieve this. Uh, my, uh, one of my favorite is, is the Countess of Lincolnshire, uh, uh, about 1600, writing to other mothers and saying, you know how all of us upper-class mothers send our babies away to wet nurses? And you know how, like, about three-quarters of them die because the wet nurses couldn't care uh, about uh, their uh, uh, the uh, uh, hired charges, uh, and we get very few of them back. And when we get them back at three or four, they're strangers anyway. Well, I want to tell you what I discovered. I did that for my first six kids, but my last child, I kept my baby myself. Oh, yes, I know what you're going to say. Your husband will say, your breast is mine. I won't share it with another baby. But tell your husband, no, wait a minute. Let this baby suck on my breast. And watch how nice it is the baby touches my breast and touches my face and smiles and goos and kiggles and so on. Uh, you get a great deal of pleasure out of that. Uh, now you see this mother uh, almost for the first time in history explaining what good parenting is 
to others and struggling through family problems, uh, whether the husband is going to be jealous uh, uh, and uh, her own fears that the baby's going to eat her up and so on. Uh, history of childhood is a series of these incidents of, of people trying to stop abusing physically, sexually, uh, uh, and uh, and emotionally, their uh, children, and uh, each generation is, if you will, a bit of historical therapy. Lloyd DeMoss. Let me now try to summarize what we have heard so far. I can detect four reasonably distinct views on the history of childhood. One which stresses the primary importance of socioeconomic factors. One which stresses media of communication. One DeMoss's which stresses the relatively autonomous development of child-rearing modes, and one which considers the issue in terms of paradigm shifts. Obviously, all these theories overlap to some extent, and while some of them claim relative completeness for themselves, I can see no fundamental reason why they should be incompatible with each other. Each adds an important dimension to our understanding of what is happening to children today, because the changes taking place in our world cut across all four domains. Psychic structure is changing. The communications environment is changing. Our socioeconomic organization is changing. And many have identified as well a basic paradigm shift in our philosophical conceptions. If, historically, our idea of childhood has been responsive to change in all four of these dimensions, then the same is likely true today. With this in mind, I would now like to return to Neil Postman's thesis that the idea of childhood is beginning to disappear. In the first place, we should note that this idea itself developed at a very uneven pace in European history, affected different classes in different ways, and has been current in parts of Canada for less than a century, all of which suggests that this idea is as much a myth as a lived tradition. Secondly, we should observe that what is passing away is not necessarily the idea of childhood as such, but rather what John Lee calls the protection paradigm, which construes childhood as a period of innocence in need of protection and cultivation. Thirdly, if we take seriously, as I do, Lloyd de Moss's idea that a more mature and more generous mode of parental behavior develops through our history then I think we need to consider the possibility that this evolution in parenting may be forging a new idea of childhood, which is in fact more advanced and more flexible than the more formal, institutionally-based version which it replaces. And finally, I think we should look at some of the limitations of the idea of childhood which stresses innocence, protection, and graduated access to the world of adults. For this, I would like to bring in John Holt. In a book called Escape from Childhood, Holt defines conventional childhood as a walled garden in order to stress that what keeps the world out also keeps children in. A great many of the people who make their livings and their careers out of being child specialists defend their work by saying they're child protectors. And I think they're sincere enough in this. I don't mean to imply kind of hypocrisy or villainy. The idea that all of these people had in mind was that the adult world is a kind of a cold, harsh, terrible place from which children should be protected. 
we have here also a kind of sentimentalized notion of children as happy, carefree people without a worry on their minds and no idea of what's going on around them. So we must preserve for them this little Garden of Eden. Uh, that's the idea. But the trouble with this is that we who feel ourselves in the, those adults who feel themselves in the real world and not liking it very much, feeling rather hemmed in and oppressed by it, feel a great deal of resentment about their children uh, not having to face what they face. So having created this space for children as a garden, they then proceed to fill it full of barbed wire and broken bottles and <laughs> various other kinds of hazards. At the end of which, the, re the, the, wor the special world of children is on the whole a great deal less attractive than the, uh, than the world of adults from which we were supposedly protecting them. Now this world is constructed of a mixture of law, custom, institution. School is a large part of it. The uh, state of Indiana in this country has a law, and there are probably many comparable laws, which says that any child under the age of something, I don't know, 16 or so, who is on the streets during school hours <clears throat> and not in the company of an adult can be picked up by the police. I mean, just... And taken to a school or some kind of custodial institution until the parents can be found and uh, the child turned over to them and there is them. So what started these uh, child enclosures, these child pens, which started as a, uh, as a supposedly garden, have in turn become essentially day prisons. What we're concerned about much more is to protect society from children. And the press is, our press is full of news stories about uh, such and such a school district uh, cracking down on truancy because they fear, probably with good reason, that a lot of the older children if, uh, are, are committing various kinds of crimes during the daytime. So they will say after after uh, the police in such and such a community, there was one in uh, San Diego, I think, quite recently, conducted a big sweep and uh, got all the children back in school. Why burglaries dropped 12% and car thefts dropped 17% in this kind of statistics. So what we've come up with is the idea, really, that children are kind of a dangerous animal that ought not to be allowed to run around loose for the protection of the rest of us. Very peculiar turnaround. Because of his feeling that schools protect society from children as much as they protect children from society, John Holt has become a proponent of home-based education and has written about it in a recently published book called Teach Your Own. I've talked to a great many educators about uh, homeschooling, home-based education in this country, Canada, other countries. And I'm always asked the question about the social life. And one of the things I have said very often in reply and say in Teach Your Own is that the social life of almost all schools and certainly almost all large schools is full of snobbery, conformism, ruthlessness, heartlessness, bullying, teasing, humiliation, uh, pecking orders, uh, and so forth. And nobody contradicts me. I mean, it, I have said this in the face-to-face -face presence at meetings of, I don't know, probably over 10,000 educators, and I can't think of more than one or two who have ever contradicted it. What they say is, but that's what the real world is like. 
So a strange ideology has grown up in the last, mostly the last 25 years. I don't think you would have heard that even in the early years after World War II. Strange ideology has grown up that the world is a really terrible, ruthless, heartless, cold, cruel kind of a place, and that we have to get children ready for that world, basically, by making school into the same kind of a place. What John Holt says here amplifies a point introduced earlier by Lloyd de Moss. Adults are often extremely ambivalent towards children, and our sentimentality towards them often turns into resentment and abuse. The protection paradigm, in this sense, often casts rather a long shadow. And I think that John Holt, Lloyd DeMoss, and John Lee, each in their different ways, are right in seeing it as something to be transcended. On the other hand, I think we also need to recognize the protection of childhood as an important historical achievement. And here I think we can see the strength of Neil Postman and David Elkind's work. It is Elkind's opinion that in relation to children, we are now witnessing a kind of abdication of adult authority. Feeling helpless and childlike ourselves, he says, we project our repressed adulthood onto children, thereby forcing them in turn to repress their dependency needs. The results are often calamitous. Jung used to say that there, we, we, we had a, a shadow and, and that we always project our shadow and what we've had to repress is our, our sense of, of, of being able to cope. And then we project it onto children. We say children are the ones who can cope. It's a little bit like what we did in the, the, the puritanical times when we, we, we repressed all our sexual and sensuality. Then it was projected onto children, and children became very sensual beings, and the sensuality had to be pushed out of them and so on. I think we've, pro we've repressed today a lot of our a lot of our adult uh, you know authority and so on for a variety of reasons because it's too scary because we can't do it because we can't handle it and therefore we project it onto children and I think uh, that uh, this uh, need to see children as adult-like uh, reflects the, the child the adult's view of himself or herself as a child and and the repression really of adult authority. And why that's come about, um, it's partly come about because of the psychological ethos, uh, you know, do your own thing, uh, be your own person, uh, you're, you're responsible only yourself, let anybody else do their own thing, and so on, which is, a, a, again, a childlike orientation, and uh, not as an adult social orientation, which we're all responsible for everybody else. But that orientation, which has been... Um, promulgated in this society by the by the psychologist and in some ways abetted by the by the educational system which has has focused upon socialization to the exclusion of individualization so that psychology and, edu and, and education should help pro you know promote both the individual and the so and social values but it's become very focused upon promoting promoting you know teaching kids to be part of the society and you know the little widgets everybody has to be at the same level at the same time little bottles you fill up and as as education has become more more sort of standardized socialized then psychologies and psychiatries have begun to treat the individual and to prefer and to provide people avenues for individualization so you have a, a bifurcation in society between the two institutions and uh, I think uh, tearing people apart. According to David Elkind, the adult world has simply become too shaky and too confused to provide a secure framework in which children can really be children. 
And whether the cause be television or adult narcissism, I think the problem is a very real one. The ecology of adult-child relationships is visibly disintegrating. But we can really only make sense of this disintegration by comprehending its overall context. I think that we need to see ourselves as standing at a frontier. In Lloyd de Moss's terms, it is the frontier between a socializing mode of parental behavior in which children are seen as a plastic material to be fashioned in the desired image and a helping mode in which parents assist children in finding their own path. In John Lee's terms, it is a frontier between the protection paradigm which still sees children as essentially owned by their parents and their society and a model of children as persons in which they are seen as owning themselves. On this frontier, as on any frontier, we are apt to see a lot of wild and woolly behavior, and that is exactly what we are seeing. Development always produces reaction, and this accounts, I think, for much of the regressive behavior which David Elkind and Neil Postman reported earlier in this program. From this frontier, there is really no way back. The vanished order of childhood half memory, half myth, is unlikely to return. Instead, I think we have to set ourselves the task of reimagining childhood according to a new set of ideals. And to this task, I will try to address myself in the remaining programs of this series. Tonight on Ideas, you've been listening to The World of the Child, Part 1, prepared and presented by Toronto journalist David Cayley. The World of the Child was produced by Damiano Pietropaolo with technical operations by Lorne Tulk. Special thanks to Susan Cramond, Alison Moss and Anne Irwin. A transcript of this four-part series is available for $5. Write to CBC Transcripts, The World of the Child, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. We also have a free reading list, and to get your copy, write to Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. For Ideas, I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.